and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Becca Rothfeld, an essayist, literary critic, and PhD candidate in philosophy at Harvard University. We will discuss her article, Having a Cake and Eating It Too, which was published in Agni, as well as her work in aesthetic value more generally. So welcome to the show, Becca. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad you were willing to come on. Um, you know, Agnes Callard introduced me to your work uh, several weeks ago, and I just totally fell in love with this essay. And I've been sort of slowly working through some of of your other stuff, and I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about with you about some of these ideas, which I think are are really fantastic. And as a kind of icing on the cake, the essay is just beautifully written. Thank you so much. Icing on the cake, haha! It's about cake, the essay. So that is a good. Right. I, 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 you know, I do my best. I do my best. So, I mean, my take on this particular piece was you're sort of like wrestling with this dialectic of possession and consumption in relation to our experience of of beauty, and I, I, I'm sure that's totally not sufficient to explain the problem that that you're wrestling with but but one thing that i was i found really interesting was that you were sort of focusing the paper through the lens of one particular scholar um simone w-e-i-l and i'm not sure i know how to pronounce her name correctly uh, but using her as a frame for the article like who was she um and what about her work was inspirational for you in writing this essay so I believe that her name is pronounced Vey, super counterintuitively, and I pronounced it wrong for a long time until I heard some people saying it Vey, which is what I now say. So if I'm wrong, uh, listeners, please correct me. Um, she was she's really cool, weird, and interesting. She was a mystic, uh, super religious, a French mystic. Um, I believe she was born in like the early 1900s, and she died in the middle of World War II. She starved herself to death. Uh, and there's like lots of debate among scholars about why that is. Some people say that she was like having stomach problems and so she couldn't eat. But some people think that it's like a part of her religious mysticism that she like refused to eat. Some people think that she like refused to eat out of solidarity with like soldiers who were suffering during World War II. Um, but she was a very unconventional thinker. She didn't join the church. She wasn't like an academic in an institution. She like refused to join the church. Um, but she wrote all this like weird philosophical kind of existentialist stuff. Um, but also just like totally original stuff that I think is unlike anything else that I've read in the philosophical canon. That's one of the things that draws me to her is that she's so outside of like the conversation that was happening among people who are in more institutional contexts. Well, and my my sense has always been that she was sort of looked as like looked at as like this sort of religious kind of Catholic myth, mystic aesthetic. Um, but you argue that there maybe was something more going on that that what was motivating her philosophical thinking wasn't just kind of the denial of the flesh, but more a kind of redirection of desire in some way. Is that a fair reading of, of your argument? 
Yes. I mean, I think that my argument is that one of the reasons that she was so aesthetic uh, in her personal life is because she yearned for a more complete form of consumption. Um, And so it wasn't really that she wanted to deny herself, but rather that she knew that any kind of possession that she could consummate on earth wouldn't be satisfying to her. And I I mean, like my Jewish controversial interpretation of a lot of Christian thought is that this is sort of a pervasive line. Like I read Augustine in this way, to some extent, too, that Part of the reason that he's so ascetic during his time on earth is because he's waiting for total fulfillment that awaits him in heaven. Well, so how does Vey then describe the kind of consumptive experience that she desires but can't find on earth? In other words, to the extent it's possible to sort of work through what she wanted, how would you describe that? So we might at this point maybe just read the quote that I think I think that this is one of the most beautiful like evocative quotes in all of the philosophy that I've ever read. So maybe I'll just read this quote about looking and eating, uh, which is the quote that kicks off my essay, um, and it's from an essay called "Forms of the Implicit Love of God," which is in a book called "Waiting for God." Um, the great sorrow of human life is knowing that to look and to eat are two different operations. Only on the other side of heaven, where God lives, are they one and the same operation. Children already experience this sorrow when they look at a cake for a long time and nearly regret eating it, but are powerless to help themselves. Maybe vices, depravities, and crimes are nearly always or even always in their essence attempts to eat beauty, to eat what one can only look at. So I think that heaven for Simone Weil or like the perfect experience of beauty is one in which we can consummate our relationship with beauty in which there's some kind of action that we can take towards beauty. uh, And on earth, there is no action that we can take towards beauty. Uh, we have to mutely look at it without interacting with it. Um, but in heaven, first of all, the beauty that we're privy to in heaven is like more complete, she thinks, because it's like the beauty of the entire universe, which is more than we could ever witness from our limited positions on earth. But also, uh, we would be able to take some kind of action towards it that would satisfy us in a way that we can't here. Well, so I mean, as I take it, she's using then the concept of beauty in a really kind of abstract metaphysical sense. Uh, Can we also think about beauty as a form of kind of more material aesthetic experience, like a beauty in the everyday world, as opposed to that kind of more abstracted sense of beauty that Faye seems to have been talking about? So, I mean, I think that many people do use the word in this way, but they thinks that like each of our encounters with beauty in the world are just promises of like the greater beauty that we will encounter later. They, they awaken in us a desire for something greater. And I think, I mean, this is a common argument. This is kind of the argument that like Ben Lerner makes in his like short book, The Hatred of Poetry, and that Alexander Namos makes in his book about beauty. But lots of people throughout the history of philosophy have thought that there, that beauty is much more uh, limited. Um, I guess, and that our encounters with it are much more limited. Obviously, Plato, I guess, takes the the Ve line as well. He's a big one. Don't want to leave him out. Mm-hmm. What would, would it be? Would it be fair then to think of beauty as like a kind of catalyst for a kind of desire for an <coughs> for another kind of experience? Then, or is something else going on? I mean, I I read beauty this way, but I think that the the predominant tradition in analytic philosophy is like the Kantian tradition, uh, which sees beauty somewhat differently. Um, I mean, I'm not a Kant expert, although I've tried to work through the third critique many times, always with great irritation and maybe with not very much understanding. But Kant's take is basically that what it is to interact with a beautiful object is to experience disinterested pleasure. Uh, 
with respect to that object or incited by that object. And there's debate about like what disinterested, what disinterested pleasure means. The disinterest piece causes people confusion. But I think for him, the basic idea is that it's enjoyable to like look at a beautiful thing or to interact with a beautiful thing. Um, and it's so enjoyable that in fact, you want to keep doing it. Uh, it's not, it's not that it promises something greater than itself. That's just a experience that's pleasant unto itself is the Kantian picture. So one thing I like about Ve is that, she is a great rejoinder to Kant, and Kant is super predominant in aesthetics now. Well, so one of the things I really found provocative about your argument was this suggestion that, you know, in a sense, like beauty awakens this kind of hunger and desire to consume that, in a sense, like not only can't be satiated by consumption of the beautiful thing, but is actually only like exacerbated. Like the more you consume, the more you want, it almost seems like. I think that that's definitely my experience of beauty. And I think that many people have noted that beauty is inexhaustible. And that's something that various accounts of what beauty is try to accommodate in different ways. Um, But I think that this account gives a pretty good explanation of why it is that we never tire, at least in my experience, I never tire of watching Persona over and over and over again. And I think that I never will. And I think that's partially because there's some action that I want to take towards it, but there there is no action that one can take towards a beautiful thing. Like one can eat a cookie that one wants to eat, one can kiss a person that one wants to kiss, but beauty itself is not something that we can interact with. There's just no mode of action that's appropriate to it on earth anyway, Um, which is why we retain our investment in beautiful objects, I think, even though you lose your appetite for the cookie once you've eaten it. (laughs) Well, and was that distinction that I thought was really like, in a sense, the reason on your on your take, it seems like beauty is ultimately always in some odd way unsatisfying is that, you know, we expect consumption to result in the kind of internalization of whatever it is that we're consuming. And yet in, in a, in an odd way, like the beautiful can never be depleted by its consumption in the way that physical things can be. And I think that that, the fact that beauty is unsatisfying is precisely what makes it in some senses satisfying, or at least in some senses, uh, more intriguing and fascinating than things that you can exhaust by consuming them. Um, like food objects, for example, (laughs) which we, we tire of. I think food is like the best example, though obviously sex is also a good example, but hopefully you don't, or maybe hopefully you don't tire of the person that you're having sex with, uh, after sex with them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so you, you at several points in the essay, you use kind of personal anecdotes to illustrate, and I found really kind of fascinatingly oblique and really beautiful ways the ideas you're discussing in in the article. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those and kind of how you thought about using that technique in the context or that approach in the context of the essay. Oh man, that's funny. Yes, perhaps now is a good time to note that this is not really, it's not an academic essay. It's more of what I would characterize as a literary essay with some academic content, uh, which is the kind of thing that I write alongside, at least what I'm supposed to be writing uh, in my PhD. Um, So the anecdote uh, that I include in in this essay is about being afraid to reveal to a man that I was seeing that I poop. 
Um, and uh, there's lots of discussion of like refraining from eating when I was with this person. Um, so that, I mean, I suppose you have to read that to really understand how that's interwoven into this discussion of Simone Bay and how beauty uh, involves the awakening of an appetite. But I suppose more broadly, my ambition in writing about philosophical topics in this way is that I believe there's like a strong continuity between philosophy and literature. And I don't think that a lot of philosophy that's written today is written in this in this style. I mean, I don't think that this is that this essay could have been published in a philosophy journal precisely because it's written in this, I hope, rich literary way. Um, and so I, I try in my public writing where I have a bit more of a freer hand to integrate my literary and philosophical interests and to try to write essays that are evocative of the experiences that they analyze philosophically, which is not something that one can really do in like more purely academic spaces. Well, I really, what I really, I mean, it, it tied your own personal experience in a sort of really deep way to sort of your read of Simone Weil, but in a kind of dialectical way, in the sense that your experience taught you something, it seems, or at least caused you to think about beauty and consumption in in a very different way. Yeah, I think it's important to show when you're writing about philosophy, if you want people to care about what you're talking about, that the stuff that we're talking about matters and like has really intimate stakes. Um, and so that's what I try to do in like most of the things that I, most of the essays I write for a public audience is to show what the intimate stakes of questions like what is the nature of beauty might be. Um, because I think in a lot of philosophical essays written just for an audience of like academic specialists, uh, it's just assumed that everybody thinks the question is important, um, but nobody really goes into like why that is and the impact that it might have on your life to answer the question of one way rather than another. Uh, in this case, uh, had I answered, answered the question of what beauty was the way that I do in this essay when I was seeing this man, I would have, or so I say in the essay, binged and eaten tons of food in his presence instead of uh, refraining from eating. Mm. Well, so, I mean, returning to your sort of metaphysical take or your description of kind of different metaphysical takes on on beauty, I, I mean, abstracting from sort of the way that this concept or concepts like this are usually discussed in in boring legal scholarship, right, is that, you know, we would say, well, beauty is in a sense a public good because it's inexhaustible, right? You can consume as much as you want, and yet just as much beauty remains for others to consume. In other words, you know, you, you, consumption doesn't diminish supply. But what I found really kind of provocative and interesting was this kind of turnaround that you do in the essay where it's like the beauty is not depleted, but in some sense, the consumer is depleted because their hunger increases even as they consume. So in a sense, like the beautiful object is almost consuming the consumer. Yeah, well, I think that in some ways, beautiful objects resist depleting the consumer in the way that other things that we can eat and finish deplete us. Um, because when we eat like a cookie or something, our appetite is diminished uh, as we finish the cookie. Um, but when we look at a beautiful object, our appetite is deepened. Um, so in that in that sense, uh, yeah, I think that our appetites um, are preserved by our encounters with beauty rather than diminished. Nonetheless, I think that we tend to be more vulnerable to beauty than is often thought. Uh, I think that there's a there's a tradition like Elaine Scarry writes about this. I actually wrote this uh, as a term paper initially in Elaine Scarry's class. So we had just read her book uh, on beauty and being just, and she talks about how there's like a tradition, a recent tradition of postmodern scholarship in which we think of beautiful objects as vulnerable 
to us. Um, and like the gaze is sort of the slogan associated with this or the term associated with this is that like beautiful women, for example, are vulnerable to the male gaze, which is pernicious. And this, this line of thought is extended even to like nude paintings or something. Um, and so Elaine says, and I agree that in reality, we are equally vulnerable to objects of beauty because they like totally displace us and disorient us and awaken these appetites in us that might be destructive, uh, maybe productively destructive, but still destructive in our lives. Uh, so yes, that was a very long winded answer to your question and also just rant. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but I mean, it seemed like in a way you were drawing part of that idea from the work of Vey and maybe some other older uh, poets or philosophers as well, but sort of putting your new, a new or different spin on it as well. I mean, it seems like the idea of that kind of dialectic of consumption was already there, but you're, you're kind of looking at it somewhat differently. Am I, is that, is that the right way of thinking about the argument? Um, the argument in this case being that we are vulnerable to beauty rather than beauty being vulnerable to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I'm not sure that I totally say that much that hasn't already been said, but I think it's an idea that's gone quite out of fashion. So, I mean, Plato, obviously, well, maybe not obviously at this point in history, but so Plato's take on beauty uh, is this, is that beauty totally uh, throws us into turmoil. His description of like the lover's encounter with the beloved and the Phaedrus, which is extremely beautiful, um, is one in which like the lover is completely... Uh, destroyed by his encounter with the beautiful object but this sort of falls this falls out of out of fashion i guess uh over the centuries in large part because on the kantian account of course we as human agents are the ones with all of the power um all of the perceptive power and we're not really beholden to beauty in any way in fact like our existence is a precondition of the existence of the beautiful object because without a subject it doesn't even make sense for there to be an object for kant so, I mean, Vey is pretty into Plato, so she's like hearkening to this. And she has a, a concept of decentering, which runs throughout her work, not just with respect to beauty, where she talks about how we should try to make ourselves decentered. And what that means for her is um, we should allow ourselves to be sort of supplanted by our engagements with things outside of us. Um, and I, I quite like this line of thought. Um, and I think that it's something that people need to be reminded of a lot because most discussions of beauty now tend to think of us as the really important like locus of the encounter and i don't think that that's true mm -hmm. and yet on one level i mean it, it it seems like we do play a really critical role i mean you had again a line i really like because you inverted it just a little bit where you said um beauty is like pornography you know it you can only know it when you see it in the sense that well, at least i took that to mean that like the desire to consume has to be present in order for us to call something beauty. And yet once we desire to consume it, it then is in a position to consume us in return in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is what the aesthetic attitude consists in, in some ways is in vulnerability to the onslaughts of beauty and in a willingness to be consumed uh, that is awakened in us by our desire to consume. Uh, and of course, this stands in like stark contrast to this tried and true idea in aesthetics that the aesthetic attitude is one of cool contemplation where you look at an art object uh, and it is precisely your engagement with the art object that divests you of your appetites is the the Kantian Schopenhauerian idea that's been taken up by all these cool analytic philosophers, um, which I vehemently reject. <laughs> 
Yeah, when I love your sort of kind of encouragement of of gluttony when it comes yes. to aesthetic experience. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I guess I'm just an aesthetic and personal maximalist. Um, and I think, I mean, especially for women, something that comes into this essay a little bit, but not too much, uh, there's a much, much pressure to refrain from satisfying our appetites to try to quash our appetites. Uh, and also in this Kantian aesthetic tradition, which I guess is gender neutral and encouraging everybody uh, to quash their appetitive, appetitive, I've never said that word, actually, I've only read it, um, appetitive relationship to objects of beauty. Um, but I think that you should desire to consume things and satisfy your desire to consume things as far as you are able, even if you cannot satisfy yourself completely. Uh in a context in which the thing that you want to consume and want to be consumed by cannot consume each other. Mm, so in other words, now we're kind of in a sense, like, unlike Vey, maybe we shouldn't let the best be the enemy of the good that we experience in the consumption of beauty. No, I, I definitely think that you should try to satisfy your appetites insofar as you can uh, by eating to excess, by looking at art to excess, and by living a generally excessive and deranged life. That's my advice. <laughs> So I read another essay I really liked by you in the Hedgehog Review on why we do philosophy. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of beauty in in relationship to philosophy. I mean, is beauty any more necessary than philosophy? Or is there some kind of relationship? do you think, between doing philosophy and desiring beauty? So I think that there is an intimate relationship between these things, although I think a lot of people doing philosophy today would deny it. Um, and that's because I have, uh, I put more stock in aesthetic value, I suppose, than other philosophers do. I think a lot of people think that moral value always trumps aesthetic value and that aesthetic value is less important than other kinds of value, uh, like moral value and some people think epistemic value. Um, so I think that most people think that philosophy is valuable maybe for moral reasons, but also largely for epistemic reasons, like philosophy is valuable because it is a good means of pursuing the truth. Whereas in my essay, I argue that maybe that is true sometimes, and that's like one source of value. Um, but that's not a plausible explanation for what makes all philosophy valuable, because much philosophy consists in endless squabbling about what's true without any uh, conclusions being reached. So my contention is that one major source of value is that philosophy is beautiful because it is continuous with literature. And so like that informs the way that I write philosophy uh, and also informs the way that I think about which philosophy that I like, because I don't, I mean, I think most people in philosophy would be hard pressed to name uh, a work of philosophy with which they agree entirely. I can't really think of any myself right now, but my favorite works of philosophy are the ones that are beautiful um, because they stick with me and they awaken these appetites in me and so on and so forth. Mm. Well, yeah, and I couldn't help but wonder, like, in the course of doing philosophy, whether it's necessary to be making morally correct arguments or true arguments, and whether maybe it isn't, or even, you know, argument, addressing problems that can be solved, and whether maybe it isn't enough to make just a beautiful argument. And I wonder if there's a you think there's a difference between those two things or a difference that we should use to distinguish them from each other? So I think that like beauty philosophy, 
desires that problems not be solved in some way. So it is in its purest iteration, I think, unconsummatable in that if if the questions that philosophy asks were decisively answered or were of the sort that can be decisively answered, philosophy would come to an end. Um, and many thinkers that I like have emphasized that the process of philosophy is a process that each person uh, must engage in anew uh, because the answers to the questions are never settled. But like Arendt and Heidegger and their discussions of thinking, their respective discussions of thinking, both stress this point uh, that Arendt puts it really beautifully. She says that questioning consists in, quote, unfreezing uh, things that have become frozen in our minds. And so this is something that in every generation, concepts become frozen in our minds and we have to unfreeze them anew. Uh, so just as beauty, our engagement with engagements with beauty never end, I think our engagements with philosophy never end, or at least that's something that many thinkers who have tried to understand what philosophy is have stressed. Um, and I think that one answer to the question of why that is, is because philosophy is beautiful. I do think that there are there is a difference between valuing something uh, in virtue of its beauty and valuing something in virtue of its truth-seeking uh, capacity. Of, of course, one piece of philosophy can display both virtues, uh, and I don't want to rule out the possibility that some philosophy is good solely because it's truth-tracking. I, I think negative philosophy is more successful in this way, like philosophy that shows that certain arguments don't work for for various reasons. I think that can be done more decisively. But I think more interesting philosophy almost always advances a positive proposal of the sort that cannot be demonstrated decisively. <laughs> well, so, so Becca, I mean, in, in closing, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more broadly about the philosophical project you're embarking on and sort of how you see your work in aesthetic aesthetic theory and the concept of aesthetic value um, developing in the near future. Scary. So this is the first term that I've been working on my dissertation. I spent all of last year pottering around proposing it. Um, so at this stage, what I think my dissertation will do, or at least part of it will do, um, I will argue against the Kantian conception of beauty um, by pointing out that one of the primary objects of beauty is people, um, and we want to sleep with people on the basis of their beauty. And so this poses, I think, a major problem, more major problem than has been recognized for Kant's account of beauty, according to which what it is to find something beautiful is to take disinterested pleasure in it, where disinterest is usually taken to mean something like, uh, I don't know, uh, detached pleasure in it. Um, and then I will talk about like what the beauty of persons is, which I think is like a pretty neglected topic. So my dissertation isn't quite about the issues that I address in these two essays, but it's about related questions. It's about what follows if we take seriously the idea that beauty awakens appetites and desires in us. Uh, and once we take that idea seriously, what are some objects of beauty that we might want to think about more that we haven't thought about before, like people and what makes a person beautiful? Mm, okay, well, then I'm, I have to do this. But like, in closing, closing, I kind of wonder what your thoughts would be on whether pornography can is beautiful or can be beautiful, or rather, like maybe the kind of desire or the kind of experience that makes people want to consume pornography, can that reflect an experience of beauty? So I think it depends on what is meant by pornography. I certainly think that lots of erotic art can be beautiful. Um, but because of the way that I understand beauty as like disorienting us, uh, and I, I think of beautiful artworks as ones that interpose 
complication between us and our relationship to the world. Um, I think that pornography that's just designed to produce uh, an orgasm is not beautiful. Um, although it's fine, I don't think that it's bad or should be removed from society or something. But I think that that doesn't trouble our relationship to people. It doesn't trouble our relationship to the world. It's it's sort of a transparency that we can look through. Uh, as we progress towards the desired outcome, which is an orgasm and it's over. So I think that lots of erotic art uh, could be beautiful in the way that I understand beauty to be, but that pornography in its current iteration for the most part is probably not beautiful. Hmm. Well, well, Becca, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, once again, I really love this essay, which you know I found really kind of intellectually provocative, but also just a really beautiful, um, inspiring read. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your work. Thanks so much. It was so nice to talk to you. the day and when the sun sinks down it's sunk away and then what do you have what what do you have in the night what do you have what do you have well i got a rod and it's hot i drive it to pay the gas i got a nine to five it the engine turns keeps the heat alive for the ladies all those girls in pictures girls in bars yeah everybody knows a girl requires a car and drove one out to look up at the stars and she was like tom do you ever notice the space that's in between the stars and i was like you know well i've seen a hole and i aim to fill it if that hole's got a heart i got the means to thrill it the hole's got a heart i got the means to fill it if that hole's got a heart just keep your girls keep your girls burning just keep your girls keep your girls burning please Keep your girls, keep your girl girls burning Cause they're, they're hot circles, give me, give me some hope, yeah Keep your girls, keep your girl girls burning Just keep your girls, keep your girl girls burning Please, keep your girls, keep your girl girls burning Cause they're, they're long hair, baby, baby's a rope, yeah um, You know, I see you walking down the street I'm driving in my car You, you look good to me Cause you, you look like a beacon of light Just beaming in the night feel safe so i'm like hey baby still exist on this planet plenty of dark places baby and who knows what's lurking there uh, i'm a man among the movements i fill in with a pretty face yeah light it up like a billboard on the hillside with a little girl on the horizon just keep your girls keep your girl girls burning just Give me, give me some hope, yeah Give your girls, give your girl girls burning Just give your girls